Well, good morning and welcome again to Intown Church. We're glad to have you in worship with us this morning. And uh, if you're new, we're going through a series on the different components of liturgy, call to worship, confession, offertory, and this morning, uh, fellowship. The idea that as we come, that each of the components are infused with worship. Some churches in, uh, decide to embody that and formalize that in what's called a passing of the peace, where you turn to the person next to you and you say, may the peace of Christ be with you. And then that formalizes and embodies the thoughts that are lie behind worship, that liturgy trains us to be loving people. It trains us to see the person that is sitting next to us differently. It trains us to lean into their lives and perhaps lift a burden perhaps carry something for them, to give them the gift of forgiveness and so forth. And this morning, we're going to be looking at what that looks like and how that uh, comes to us out of the love of God himself. And as we prepare to do that, would you uh, pray with me one more time? Father, we thank you for this beautiful morning. We thank you for this wonderful place to meet and worship. We, We thank you for the smiles on the children's faces as they see one another. We thank you for the way that a careful, thoughtful embrace from a friend can lift us up, can change our lives. Father, we believe that you are in those smiles and in those embraces and you are in this place and it's why this place is beauty, beautiful. Father, others of us have a hard time noticing these things of beauty. Many of us need you so badly. We need a glimpse of beauty. Some of us have encountered something this week that has shaken us. Others are embroiled in conflict at work. Others are exhausted by keeping up the appearance of having it all together. We've been trying over and over to walk towards you, and over and over we find the pathway blocked, or we've been disappointed by what we found. Or maybe we find ourselves in church this morning a bit surprised because we walked away years ago and said, I'll never be back. Wherever we find ourselves this morning, let us sense your hospitality. Let us sense your welcome. Let us believe that you came in the flesh devoid of glory to search for and find us. Let us remember that you are a relentlessly gracious and loving God who makes his home among us. As we inhabit your home this morning, would we delight in you and you in us? And we pray that we would see your love more fully. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, children learn to navigate the systems that they're brought up in. If a parent is prone to anger, then they learn how to behave in order to sort of diminish or forestall that anger. And that family system is based upon a system of fear. It is a system of fear. Others have to navigate much more subtle signals. Perhaps the parent doesn't have outbursts of anger, but they overpraise good behavior. And this child isn't afraid of outbursts, but that the spigot of praise might be turned down. It might be turned off, and so they keep performing. They keep chugging along. But it's also a system that breeds anxiety. Both systems breed insecurity, even though one system's pathology is much more obvious and outward. Even young children can learn to navigate those types of systems. And think about adopted children, foster children. They have to 
wrestle with this as well. And maybe at a more fundamental level, because it's not just the parent's approval that is tenuous, but maybe they perceive that the family system itself is tenuous. And so oftentimes, foster children might be a little bit slower to open up and trust. They may think, well, this is too good to last. I've been in and out of different homes, and sooner or later, they'll get tired of me. They'll be frustrated. They'll be disappointed and send me back. Well, Christianity, among other things, is meant to be a new family system, having as its center the seeking, questing, pursuing love of God, believing that at the very center of that family system is a love that will never be diminished and never be put out, that it'll never tire of loving the people of its affection. And therefore, a family system that's rooted in that can begin to transcend the anxiety and fear inherent in other systems. This passing of the peace that I mentioned, this idea that fellowship, loving one another, imbues each of the components. It helps us learn to love. It helps us learn to live in a new family system, a new family dynamic where unconditional love is at the center. Not performance, not fear, not anxiety. But of course, we all grew up in different systems that may have bred that type of anxiety and dysfunction into our lives. And so we bring it into this new system. We bring it into the church. And without a sustained, thoughtful, critical effort to look at what it means to be loved conditionally, we'll breed these same pathologies in church family systems. That's why each and every week we're called to worship together. We're called to confess our sins together. We're called to eat together. We're called to come and offering ourselves as uh, vessels of love to others. We're called to receive His Word as a community, as a family system of love. And this is done in relationship to the God who is love. Our New Testament reading this morning comes from 1 John 4. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love and does not know God, whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. And this is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through him this is love not that we loved god but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins dear friends since god so loved us we also ought to love one another no one has ever seen god but if we love one another god lives in us and his love is made complete in us and this is the word of the lord I tricked you there, didn't I? We could spend really the bulk of our time just on those three words in verse 8, that God is love. Not that He acts lovingly. It's not simply that He loves, that He has love, but that He is love. Love is not merely one of His attributes, but it's His very nature. He is love. And think with me for a minute. That means that 
in that it is part of his very existence, it is uncaused. It is not caused by the object of his love, but love exists in him. He is love. And for all of eternity, Father and Son and Holy Spirit have existed in this continual, eternal cycle of giving and receiving love. These three persons have given, received, lived, breathed, shared in inexhaustible love. So there was nothing whatsoever in the objects of his love that were then created that called them into existence. In other words, God didn't need us in order to express his love because of that inexhaustible love that was constantly brewing in the midst of the Trinity. There is nothing in us that prompted him. The reason he created is out of desire that he desired to express his love further, and so therefore you and I came into existence. And so two things about this. God's love doesn't resemble our love, but our love in its best expression resembles his. God's love is not just an amiable weakness. It's not a good-natured indulgence. It's not mere sentiment, but it's a kinetic. It's a positively charged love that seeks out objects to bestow this love upon. The love between the persons of the Trinity overflows its banks in order to wash over other people. It's free. It's spontaneous. It's uncaused. And this means, thankfully for you and I, that our status as loved persons is not dependent upon our loveliness. It's not dependent upon our worthiness. It doesn't rise out of God's bosom because we are so wonderful. He bestows His love upon us out of His desire that His love is inexhaustible. It's constantly overflowing its banks and we get to be recipients of that. And that's why it's not like our love because you and I give love because of something attractive in the recipient. You and I give romantic love because it at least at some level, there's a spark there. There's something that is attractive in that person that we want to bestow love upon them. We love a particular wine over another wine because why? It tastes better. It's more beautiful. It's more floral. We give preference to a certain artist because we love the beauty of their work over against the beauty of another work. But that's not how God's love works. You and I are loved because of God's kinetic, seeking, pursuing love is forever lavishing love upon us. His love is based upon His desire and not what you do or don't do. It's not based upon your worthiness. And you see, without that security, without that eternal, unconditional love, our family our peer groups, we're, we're naturally suspicious and closed off. We learn to adapt in those systems that don't operate based upon that eternal security and unconditional love. We close ourselves off. and th- So we bring that into the church. And we close ourselves off from other people because we don't trust them. We don't trust the work of God through them. And then we encounter new systems, new expectations. You see, there's a bunch of inherent commands in this passage. We're called out of a life where we're oriented around the self and we're commanded to 
pray for one another, to serve one another, to submit to one another, to love one another. That is to do fellowship with one another. And if we're not careful, thoughtful, intentional, we'll learn to adapt to this new system in unhealthy ways. We'll relate to God as we do to our dysfunctional parent or to a fickle friend. And we'll perform these new obligations in order in some way to curry favor with Him and to prove ourselves to each other. What the Gospel says, what the fact that God is love tells us is that our new life in Christ, if you're a Christian this morning, is intended to be lived through Him as it says in verse 9. Your obedience, your relationship to Him is meant to grow and flourish out of your status as one to whom God has displayed and bestowed His love upon. In leading up to this part of the letter that John is writing in 1 John 3, he says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. See what great love He's lavished that you are now a child, a son or daughter of God Himself. You see, when you meet God in the person of His Son Jesus, when you come to place your faith and your trust and your hope in Him, your status goes from orphan to heir. It goes from outsider to son and daughter. You have become a child of God. And therefore, you're not just permitted at the table, you're given a seat of honor. You're not simply welcomed into His family, but welcomed into His heart. You don't just become His possession, you become His passion. You become His utter delight. Do you believe that this morning? Do you get that this morning? What John is telling us and what Jesus tells us over and over, the good news, the Gospel, isn't simply that God tolerates our sin, that He allows us to return if we will repent, but He runs after us. That He pursues us with relentless hospitality. That His love continually overflows His banks and washes over you. God is the prodigal God that runs out after you. Not because you have repented, but even before you repent, He pursues you. He tracks you down in order to love you. In order to place His desire upon you. And there's evidence of understanding this type of love. There's evidence to understanding this type of love for your own self. That this is how you know God. It's because He's pursued you. What are the evidences? Well, John tells us some. It's that you begin to love others. That you love others intentionally irrespective of the merits of the object of that love. You don't look out and seek out just the beautiful, comfortable people, the people that affirm you, but you begin to seek out others to bestow love upon them, irrespective of their merits or demerits, just like the love of God Himself. You can use DNA analysis to identify family relationships. If there's a question of Paternity, a simple blood test, a simple sample of a fleck of skin or a piece of hair, you can get enough DNA from that to establish who the Father is. Well, John says that the paternity test for the church is love. That if you are truly in His love, if you are truly one of His, then you have His DNA, which is love. 
and it begins to percolate out and begins to overflow its banks and be given to other people. You see, love is part of God's DNA, not simply an aspect or a component of His character, but it's who He is. And verse 7 says, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And so friends, the disturbing part of this is that we don't have to be perfectly loving But if we don't see some growing intentionality, if we don't see some aspect where our love, the circle is growing and expanding, if that's not happening, then we need to go back and inspect whether we really actually know God as He is, whether we've actually encountered Him and been united to Him. Because if we don't have His DNA, then the paternity test fails. And we need to think about that, as scary as that might be. If a person or a church is truly related to Him as Father, then His DNA of love will show up in the DNA of the church, in the DNA of the family system. And you begin to pursue people to love. You carry grace to other people, for this is what God's love has done for you. He has gone out to bring you into His loving care. He sought you out at great cost to Himself. And so therefore, if you've experienced that, you find yourself more and more willing to extend forgiveness to people who have wronged you. You begin to care for and seek out people different from you. You lift up those who don't have the power to affirm you or do good to you. And in order for us to understand this, in order for us to get it through our thick skulls, the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, continually draws our attention to who? To the widows, to the orphans, to the alien, to the outsider, to those who have what? No power. No power to reciprocate. The Bible consistently foregrounds these people so that we can understand the type of love that we've experienced if we are in Christ. What is common among these groups is that they have no power to either affirm us or to secure their own rescue. They have nothing to barter, nothing anyone needs. And so there's a cost to befriending them. There's a cost to loving them. There's a cost to reaching out to them and giving them the same status that you enjoy as insider, as child of God. Giving grace to them is an expense in most times in most places. But see, your love of these types of people, these concepts of people gives evidence that you know what kind of love has been extended to you that you know what kind of love has rescued you you had no power you didn't have anything to barter with in order for God to look upon you favorably you didn't have anything to say God please give me your love and I will give you this instead his love came upon you because you had no power, because you were needy, because you were helpless. And insofar as you recognize that, God lavished His love and approval upon you. And insofar as we get that, then people you would otherwise have nothing to do with become your friends. People notice that you begin spending time with others outside your peer group or your social class. You find yourself listening patiently too. Loving, learning from, respecting people of other races, other ethnicities, other cultural backgrounds. 
And as a church, you find that the unity of the church is not based upon superficial things like race or economic status or sexual practice or political conviction, but upon a common understanding of the nature of God's love itself. And so there is a conduct of love that is expected of those loved by God. And the question we should ask is how? How could I possibly begin to do this? How could I begin to love people like that at such great cost? How do we love one another? Where do we begin to find the power to provide for those who need our love? Our obedience in love, our conduct of love, always has to be rooted in the fact that God loved us enough to send His Son as an atoning sacrifice for us. That's what it's rooted in. That God takes the initiative. That He brings us His affection and His embrace. His eternal approval. That He has bestowed that upon you at no cost to you and at every cost to Himself. You see, we're used to doing things in order to get someone's attention. We perform in order to gain someone's favor. We do our duty to stay out of trouble. We're used to striving to attain or maintain acceptance. Whether it's acceptance of a deity, a religious community, a workplace, a peer group. We have anxiety in these places because we don't know if the acceptance is truly there, if someone really sees who I am, if they'll still approve me and love me. But John in the New Testament turns that on its head saying, we love and serve one another not to get acceptance with God, but because in Christ we already have acceptance with God. We obey not to become children of God, we obey because we are children of God. Verse 9, He sent His one and only Son into the world so that we might live for Him. And don't miss this. This is important because it's not just that in becoming a Christian you, know, you now know how to think about the world. That you now have right thoughts that are entering into your mind. That's true enough, but that's not what changes you. What changes you is that Christ Himself takes up residence in your heart that Christ begins to spew forth His loving affection in your heart and it begins to reverberate outward. St. Macarius, who was a, a monk in the 4th century, wrote that within the heart is an unfathomable depth. There are reception rooms and bedchambers in it, doors and porches, and many offices and passages. In it is the workshop of righteousness and wickedness. And it is death, and it is life. But the heart is Christ's palace. And there Christ the King comes to take His rest with the angels and the spirits of the saints. And He dwells there, walking within it and placing His kingdom in it. Living the Christian life means opening up your heart to Jesus. It means allowing Him to take up residence in all of the bedrooms and in the front porch and in the kitchen and in the back rooms and in the hallways. All of it is now opened up and it's where Jesus' love is taking root. And so therefore, when people come into your house, into your heart, they meet Jesus. They get His love. And you know what? There are particularly challenging rooms to open up. 
Because most of the rooms in our hearts, before we meet Christ, we want to close them off. We open them up only to people who are like us. Only to people that affirm us. Only to people that have something to barter, something that we need. And what Jesus says is He's coming to let out all the rooms, particularly to people who, in your mind, don't deserve a place there. He wants to rent them out, let them out, free of charge, especially to those who challenge our no-vacancy sign. Bring in the foreigners. Bring in the widow. Bring in the orphan. Bring in the alien. This bed is for you. Take your rest, and it's free. That's what the love of God begins to do in our hearts. Because you see, these people are now family. These people are the people that you begin to see as those through, who, through you whom God wants to love. God wants to bestow and lavish His love on other people just as He did with you. And wonder of wonders, He wants to do it through you and through the church. Jesus says in John 13, as we read, a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Those outside will know in town, knows God, that Jesus takes up resonance here insofar as we love one another and love those outside and welcome in those who in our human thoughts have no right to be here. And so who are those people for you? Who challenges your presuppositions? Who would sit down next to you and you would think, what are they doing here? Why are they here? Is there someone in your life, is there someone outside that you think of like that? We need to begin to ask ourselves, how can I manifest the love of Christ in my family, with my children, with my roommate, with my spouse, with my co-workers? Is there a way that I can respond to them not with sarcasm, not with revenge, not with judgment or anger or just unkindness? Am I living as one who knows of God's love with those people? When I see someone in need of peace, the peace of friendship, the peace of help, the peace of forgiveness, am I out of the peace of God that I have willing to pass that peace on to others? even if it costs me time or money, even if I have to give up my anger, even if I have to give up my reputation, can I love this person? Can I pass on this peace to them? This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for others. So friends, because you have given peace, been given peace through Christ, let us be a church. Let us be families. Let us be individuals that pass the peace of Christ on to one another. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you would make us to be a church that loves its neighbor. Whoever that neighbor is, whatever they think about you, however they think politically, whatever they're giving their lives to, I pray that we would be the aroma of Jesus that would invite them into a living relationship with You. Invite them into a vital conversation about what love really is and who 
it comes from. And Father, give us, those who do believe, the conviction that You are love for us and that we reside in Your heart and that in Christ, that residency is never threatened. Lord, help us to believe that. Help us to extend that to others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.